0: Episode 119 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and this week on Monster Kid Radio, we're definitely talking about a classic topic here on the show. We're going to be talking about Boris Karloff. Specifically, we're going to be talking about an upcoming one-man play about Karloff. And to kick things off, we're going to spend this episode meeting and talking with the creator of Karloff, the one man play Randy Bowser. By the way, big thanks to Reber Clark for introducing me to Randy and giving me a heads up about his upcoming project One of these days I'm going to have Reber on the show proper to talk about a movie that we've talked about off mic but anyway, this is about Randy this is about his project, this is about Karloff So here we're going to introduce you to Randy Bowser. We're going to talk about his love of these monster movies, his background, and his love of all things Karloff, which is something I think all of us here at Monster Kid Radio can relate to. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and get some of the basics out of the way. MonsterKidRadio.net is our website, and that's where you can find out everything you need to know about the show between episodes. From here, you can click on things like bands and songs and find links to the music that you hear here on Monster Kid Radio. For example, this show opened with the song Hollow Point from the band Atomic Mosquitoes. It's from their album Meltdown. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. You can find them over at their website by following the bands and songs button over at our website or follow the link in the show notes. And if you do pick up their album, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. You're also going to find a link to our live 365 radio station. It's where you can hear music and sounds from movies from the 30s to the 60s 24-7. You can find a link to our Facebook group, where there are conversations happening between episodes, between listeners of this podcast. You can find our YouTube channel, our Flickr album, and our contact information, which I'll go over here at the end of the show. Also, if you click on links and podcasts, you're going to find a selection of of various podcasts and websites that we've linked to from Monster Kid Radio. One of these links is to the podcast Disney Indiana. Disney Indiana is the podcast that just recently crossed the six-year mark. Now, that's something like 99 in podcasting years or something like that, but six years of Disney Podcasting Disney Indiana is produced by Scott and Tracy Morris, a couple of monster kids that have appeared on this podcast, both together and separately over the past year and couple of months. I appreciate their support in all things that I do up to and including Scott being one of my co-hosts on 1951 down place. Tracy did a guest in there as well. They were also involved in my previous podcasting project. They're great people and they are some of my nearest and dearest friends. And I want to say congratulations from the bottom of my monster kid heart for hitting the six-year mark at Disney Indiana. It is one of the best podcasts for all things Disney. They share their fandom of all things Disney. They share their trips, their experiences, their memories, their history with Disney. And they do a lot of research. So you're going to learn something about the mouse and everything the mouse is involved with by listening to their podcast. It definitely has the Monster Kid Radio and the Derek M. Cook stamp of approval. Check them out over at DisneyIndiana.com. But don't take my word for it. I'm going to play their promo, and then we're going to get to Randy Bowser and Carl Off right about now. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Gene Jean Grey.
1: Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson.
0: A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this.
1: Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts.
0: We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer.
1: Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles.
0: You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about.
1: And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully,
0: Fozzie Bear,
1: Buzz Lightyear,
0: Link Hogthrob, Doug, Janice,
1: Merida, Pepe, Bruce,
0: Ralph the Dog, Wally, Dr. The Disney Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. Monster Kid Radio. I'd like to welcome to the show, I I think it's safe to say he's a monster kid, a fan of at least one (laughs) of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio, Randy Bowser. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks
1: for having me, Derek. And you're right, I'm certainly a monster kid, despite age. We won't talk about that.
0: You know, I think as we go along, age doesn't really matter when it comes to Monster Kid. I mean, I'm in my 40s. I consider myself a monster kid. I know there are people that are younger than me that love these movies just as much as I do, if not more. So I think age... You know, it isn't really a requirement anymore.
1: Well, it's encouraging to know that people younger than us um, are discovering and loving these movies also. I really love the name Monster Kid Radio because you're exactly right. Once you're a monster fan like us, you're a monster kid forever. I, I, I like that concept a lot.
0: Definitely. And that's actually something I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, you've got some projects coming up. But before we get to the big project, Uh when did you first discover these movies?
1: (laughs) When I was what most people refer to as a kid. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) When I was a human kid, uh, back early junior high years, I discovered Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's the source uh, that a lot of people... In my generation, will point to as the thing that was the catalyst in their realization of how great these old movies were that were done way before we were born. Um, and Forey Ackerman, the famous editor of the magazine, he reintroduced Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, John Carradine, all these greats, and as well as technical people like Jack Pierce, and he showed us why we should care. And boy of course, we went over like gangbusters. And um, as a result, George Lucas, Spielberg, they all will refer to famous monsters as a very important
0: influence when they were kids. Oh yeah. And I, I'm in that group. Oh, yeah. I think there's a reason why people like Joe Dante refer to him as Uncle Furry. I mean... <laughs> you I bet. Mean, the, the man was influential and really impacted pop culture in a way that hadn't been done before when it comes to these classic monsters. That's right. You know, right before the
1: magazine uh, famous monsters um, came out there was shock theater which was the first release that universal did they released a big package of their films to television for the first time mm-hmm. and so it was the first time that all these classic movies the mummy frankenstein dracula all these things were on television and then i think it was probably directly in the wake of shock theater that Warren and, and Ackerman realized, now's the time to strike, to uh, put together, <laughs> you know. And so it was, it was those two elements, the shock theater and the magazine, and we were all hooked almost immediately.
0: You know, that shock theater package ended up being sent across the country, different stations uh-huh. picked it up, and uh-huh. there were horror hosts that introduced those programs. Did you have a horror host, Corona?
1: I didn't, ah. but the major metropolitan areas certainly had them. And watching them in in retrospect, it's great fun. But no, we just had um, just late night monster movie episodes. I remember as a kid, I would sneak down, but I was supposed to be asleep, and the rest of the family was in bed. And I would sneak down and turn the television on, sit real close because I had to have it low. And that's when I watched these things for the first time on very (laughs) late at night. Mm -hmm. A really good atmosphere to watch horror films for the first time in a darkened house late at night.
0: (laughs) You've got the scary stuff on the screen and then that little touch of fear that you might get caught. So it just kind of adds to it. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Oh, it sounds great. Yeah, I I didn't necessarily have the exact same kind of experience. I wasn't allowed to watch these movies growing up. So I'm always fascinated Uh to talk to uh, people who did have that as part of their growing up experience.
1: Well, I wasn't really allowed either. That's the reason I was sneaking <laughs> down. Now, you know, it's hard probably for uh, many or maybe even all younger people to know how strict discipline from parents could be in earlier decades.
0: Oh, okay. Uh
1: so that so that I wasn't allowed during the same period, I wasn't allowed to buy comic books. That looked scary or even superhero comics. I was only allowed to buy funny animal comics, you know, <laughs> and so that uh, my older brother had a stash of Superman and my friends would have Batman and other comics. And um, it was a surreptitious thing to even have access to those comics and the same with movies. I remember a time in particular I went to a. I don't remember the movie I saw. What I remember is the the poster they had for the coming attraction. Which was the Hound of the Baskervilles, the Hammer version? Oh, nice! And they had a—it was a great poster, just a big close-up of the dog, you mm-hmm. know, with red eyes and you know snarling. And my mom saw that that was coming, and she said, "There's no way you're going to go see that movie." <laughs> and mom. there I was—I was twelve or something. You know, you, I don't think kids nowadays <laughs> know that um, parents could be that strict, and that we listened to them. We would just have to do it. Behind their backs.
0: Then <laughs> I'm glad I did. Which makes it kind of stick in your memory even more, I think. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. You bet. But once you get a hold of the forbidden stuff, no, but, but Famous Monsters magazine and Forey's great, you know, lighthearted way of introducing us uh, kids to um, what all that was about, that was a really important cultural event in pop culture, and in many lives, including mine.
0: One of the things that I find fascinating about Monster Kids and people who grew up watching and loving these classic monster movies specifically Uh is the... Different creative pursuits that people have fallen into uh-huh. as they you know get older you know we talk to a lot of uh-huh. artists we've talked to sculptors who love making and and creating masks and and beautiful uh-huh. artwork celebrating these these monsters you want a different route you're a musician yes but also an actor okay
1: and a director um, well music was something that I was um, doing from an early age I, I kind of taught myself how to play the piano and so as oh. a, in grade school I would um, entertain parents guests by playing little things that I had written so you know it was came naturally to me as a result I think I've always taken uh, the music part of myself for granted maybe but when I discovered acting in the seventh grade that was hmm, that was quite an event a more important event and in retrospect I know for certain that one of the inspirations for going ahead with acting pursuing theater Was Boris Karloff. He was an inspiration. As an unusual actor who had a great career and had such a wonderful presence on the screen, he was an inspiration all my life. And I know that as a kid, there I was with Monster Magazine, and I was given a role in a play, and the two things came together. You know, I wanted to be another Boris Karloff.
0: Oh, wow. So how long did you practice the lisp?
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, <laughs> that gets into something about the metamorphosis of, of the project that, uh, that drew your attention to me. Sure. Because what we're talking about is what I call a one-person play about Boris Karloff, and the title is simply Karloff. Well, the idea came up last year when I was wanting to find the subject for a one-man show that I could do. I tossed different ideas around with my wife. And then once I thought of the idea of Boris Karloff, I thought, oh, now this, okay, that's something nobody has done that I that I was aware of. And I wanted to pursue that idea. But I, at the time, I was thinking of it as a vehicle for myself as an actor. But as I worked, my focus shifted. I started doing all the research And what I got more interested in was just writing an effective script rather than creating something specifically as a vehicle for myself. I decided to concentrate on being a playwright and then finding an actor who I would feel could become a Boris that would be really most effective on stage. In other words, I kind of stepped down. I fired myself as a <laughs> as an actor, <laughs> uh, deciding that I could find someone who could possibly be more effective. You asked about the lisp. Well, so I was just seeing what I could do with a, a, a Karloff um, speech.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The first thing that I felt that a, a, an effective Karloff on stage would need is a baritone voice. I'm a tenor, and I can't. You know, when I try to get low, it just starts getting croaky. But Mm -hmm. he had this—that's one of the hallmarks of of Karloff's persona—was this rich voice that, as we know, glided up and down the scales so effectively. As
0: oh wow uh, wow that was good though that was good thanks.
1: As uh, Bobby Pickett did famously in *The Monster Mash*, you know, oh, yeah. I was working in my lab late one night. You know, he he really nailed that important aspect of of Karloff's way of speaking. But jumping ahead, the actor who is now rehearsing for this first production of Karloff, he has a very nice baritone voice that he doesn't have to work at getting, um, and also he has the range and i felt that was important because everyone thinks of that melodious unique karloff voice which in one of the things about it is that he was he was a baritone and the lisp is uh, difficult because at this point i've i've watched every movie i can find there were many that i hadn't seen before i started writing the script but in studying his films my impression is that in order to overcome two different speech impediments that he had one was to stutter and one was a lisp in order to overcome those he became very clear in his enunciation that he may be even overcompensated out of a concern of not being understood because he remembers as a kid being made fun of because he talked funny but his lisp still comes out but not consistently it's not it's a very unique lisp you know there are moments in films where it's very pronounced, like in The Black Cat, when he says something about Bela Lugosi's character. He says he has – do you remember the line? Uh, he, has a, um, he has a pronounced fear of cats. <laughs> you know, cats. And the boy, there it is. But in other films, he'll hit a, something that could be possibly really sibilant, and he, and he doesn't lisp. In other words, it's, it's kind of a uh, hide-and-go-seek lisp that pops up sometimes. Sure. And other times not. One way to protect himself was to often um, ask permission to rewrite lines slightly so they'd be easier to hide his impediments. Anyway, (laughs) these are all the sorts of technical things that that my actor is now grappling with as he develops his version of Boris for the stage. Sure.
0: Well, as you were putting the project together, you said that you watched a lot of Karloff movies. I'm sure you watched a lot over the years, being a fan, a lifelong oh, yeah. fan. What would you say are your top two or three Karloff performances? It's impossible to, to not <laughs> okay, well, have about five, six, seven. You know, they are <laughs> well, no. Gonna what right I was going to say
1: actually was, yes, <laughs> it is impossible, really. Except, it's impossible not to have Frankenstein. Sure. Um, in the top three. Obviously, in later films, he had opportunity to show even more. Uh, he got to speak a lot more, <laughs> considering he had no speech in the first Frankenstein film. True. But it's impossible to relegate his performance in Frankenstein to anything less than the number one or two slot. It goes beyond, of course, this is back when they weren't even making horror films, they were just making films that were strange. Sure. They weren't cranking out there wasn't a preconceived idea of what a horror film was like so he didn't approach the role like "Oh, i'm playing a monster he approached it like oh, i'm playing this character i'm playing this reanimated corpse and he did it so honestly and through working with james whale really managed to find the humanity and the pathos of this character which still works perfectly when you watch it nowadays
0: Sure. I mean, we were just talking about his voice being so distinct, but in Frankenstein, it's all body action. It's all… Pantomime. Yeah, pantomime.
1: Yeah. That's right. Well, you know, he had done 80 films before that role. It's true. And most of them were silent movies. And it's really fun to find at least clips from his silent work because like all performances in silent movies, it had to be expressive just with the, the face and body. And he was very able to do that. In that sense, that was his um, apprenticeship in being such a good pantomimist that he is in Frankenstein.
0: Yeah, definitely. His performance as Frankenstein. Then he gets to talk a little bit in The Bride of Frankenstein. I mean, yes, it's... and he objected to that.
1: And that's a fact that I worked into the script because he rather stubbornly felt that it was damaging to the character. But the good actor that that he was, he 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 did what was required of him. But he really objected strongly. Um, and then, years later, when there was finally the son of Frankenstein, the original script had pages of dialogue for the monster, uh, based on the fact that the monster had uh, spoken in the in the second film, the Bride, um, and he begged he begged them to not do dialogue yeah, in son. And then they agreed, right? And they, and they cut it all. As as we know, he does he doesn't speak in that. But that's a a moment. Which we have in the in the script in, in Karloff the one man play because it's kind of surprising because he, he did the dialogue beautifully the Bride uh, of course probably most famously in the uh, the scene with the blind hermit right you know, good uh, all that you know, good. yeah exactly yeah. absolutely I mean, he did that brilliantly because that's something about him is that no matter. How lowly the project, and he was in some projects of very questionable success. <laughs> <But> he, <laughs> he, 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 My perception is that he was always giving it his all, no matter how bad the thing was. He made it as good as possible. He really tried to make whatever he was given to do. He would really tried to approach the work honestly, and he succeeded. He was always uh, giving it his all. So you can watch that's something about his films some of them very bad like uh, especially some later ones he's always worth
0: watching Sure he he does elevate the productions there's a, he does. a level of class Absolutely. that he brings to the film so even if it's something especially you mentioned toward the end of his career you know some of the movies like Isle of the Snake People Oh yeah oh god <laughs> they're kind of tough to watch but Oof, yeah it's never tough to watch Karloff. Exactly
1: Exactly. Even in those those very final ones, when I mean the man, he, he he really spent most of his time in a wheelchair. He would be propped up if he was supposed to be standing in a, in a shot. He insisted on still rising from his wheelchair and just standing long enough for them to get the long shot, even though he was standing there in absolute pain from all of his physical problems, and then collapse into the wheelchair again after the shot was taken. That's an example of a lot of things of how. Driven he was as an oh, yeah. actor, how he just insisted on, on working up until the end, and um, th- he would do anything to get the job done, no matter even if it was physically painful to him.
0: He was committed, he was definitely a professional, that's for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the key things that we see in the play, which is so uh, clear in the biographies that I read, is that he was so humble. And I think that the best actors do tend to be actually humble about their own talent. He never took himself for granted, like, oh, yeah, this is a snap. I can just walk in and, you know, do it. He was rather well-known for having a great deal of insecurity about his abilities as an actor. Like any true artist, he was always wanting to be better, and he didn't rest on his laurels. He never took his own gifts for granted, something that's in the play, which is um, happily very well documented in the biographies, his first Broadway breakthrough was Arsenic and Old Lace. Well, it's a horror comedy, you know, Mm -hmm. and and at that time, it was the most successful production ever on Broadway up to that point. But it was very hard for them to talk Boris into doing the the thing. He didn't feel like he, he could be accepted on stage again, even though his early career had been touring Canada as an actor when he was learning his craft he didn't feel good enough to be on Broadway he thought he would be laughed off the stage to the point that and this is a scene which we have in the play at the first uh, rehearsal which is a read through of the whole script he was so nervous his stutter came back for the first time he, it's like he be- he became that
0: Oh, wow. Insecure,
1: stuttering child again. He, oh, was, no. he, he was stuck. He was stuttering. People were embarrassed. He was horrified. And he almost quit the production. At that read-through, and as he was um, given the script and he's sitting down to read the script cold, he, he had never seen the script before, and, and he had never been at a read-through, as they're called. Uh, the, he had never had done that before. Uh, he was sitting on a bench. And one of the actors in the play, who was also sitting on that same bench, said that Karloff was so nervous and so shaking that the whole bench was was vibrating. That's how terrified he was. And uh, um, it took him some time to overcome his fear of doing that show. And then, of course, it turned out to be a gigantic hit uh, that kept him busy for something like a year and a half. Because it was such a success.
0: Right, yes. Well, Arsenic and Old Lace* is one of the longest-running plays anyway so yeah definitely that's well it was a real breakthrough for him because he wanted to be always
1: um, expanding himself as an actor uh, something he did throughout his whole career taking on new media you know his, his career spans almost 50 years and it's like a history of of the entertainment industry of the 20th century doing silent films and then talking films and then lots of radio and then television mm-hmm. and then lots of records probably the most well-known of those is um his great uh, narration for uh, peter and the wolf he did everything and going back to arsenic is that that show really gave him the push of confidence to keep going into new things so that what, later when other broadway projects came up he was ready When he did um, the version of Peter Pan, which was a huge hit in 1950, and he played Captain Hook, none of those problems that he had at uh, Arsenic in the the early rehearsals, none of that was there. He was confident. And then later came what he felt was the high point of his career, which was playing Cochon in The Lark, uh, about Joan of Arc. Oh, okay. That was in 19... Fifty-five, and that was another huge hit. Uh, Julie Harris played Joan of Arc. The co-star was Boris Karloff. And luckily, there was a television version on the Hallmark Hall of Fame. It was a cut-down version, and so it's it, you know it's just kind of a, a glimpse of what the stage show was like. But we get to see at least some of Karloff's performance, which got him the best reviews
0: of his career. I'm not even familiar with that, so uh, you're giving me some homework now. This I have to go check this thing out.
1: <laughs> Well, you know, notice I, I'm mentioning things that are not what Karloff fans first think of, of course. We always think of him as the mummy and the monster. Sure, the, and the, rightly so. I mean, Absolutely, absolutely. That was, you know, he he rather famously said that the monster was the best friend he ever had. Sure, He had the opportunity to, to go ahead with the rest of his career because of that role of the monster. That's what made him famous, and he never uh, regretted it and... Um, always was happy to be re- be remembered for that monster. But in the wake of it, he got to do so much more. It's occurred to me, after writing this play and now being in rehearsals for it, that Karloff fans could possibly expect something a bit different than what they're going to see when they see the show. They might be expecting kind of a, just a horror show, maybe just kind of a fun send-up or something, you know, a, a pastiche of moments from all the the things that he's most famous for. Well, without wanting to be pretentious, I would still say it's more deep than that. It's about a real human being. It's about Boris Karloff, the man who, now that I've read all these biographies, I know was so opposite from his screen persona. The most commonly said thing about him from his friends and people who worked with him is that he was so gentle and he was soft-spoken he was one of those people that when you talk with him, he made you feel like you were the only person in the world because he was so interested in what you were doing. He loved pets and gardening. He was really uh, kind of the prime example of an old fashioned English gentleman, you know? But here he was playing these wild characters, <laughs> which reminds me of a line. From real life, uh, which is in the play, a friend asked him why he thinks that he was always playing such weird characters. And his answer was, I guess because I'm weird looking. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some truth in that. He had to overcome so many obstacles that other successful actors didn't have to. He had those bowed legs, bandy legs, as people say, when he was right. a kid. He was born with those kind of malformed legs. and his, He had the stutter, he had the lisp, and something that he was taunted about, especially as a child, was that he was very dark-skinned. He was Anglo-Indian, a great deal of Indian, we're talking about the country India, right. Um, right. blood. And so that is something that he didn't really talk about. He knew that, it, especially in those days, he was correct that it could have been detrimental to his career. But here he was. You can see in some of his earliest pictures, I mean, he looks, sometimes he can look like he's pure Indian. He mm-hmm. was He was so dark and exotic looking, unusual looking. He had all these, the point is, he had all these obstacles to overcome. But he was so determined, he was so driven to be an actor, which was totally... Unlike the rest of his family, they, they didn't approve of his aspirations at all. And that's why he fled England and came to Canada to become an actor. But he his success, his drive to, to realize and pursue and then realize his dream, that's what the play is about, which ultimately makes the the universal message of the play is...
0: Uh, No pun intended?
1: (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Is that it's the story of the triumph of the human spirit. Sure. We all like to to watch what makes somebody a winner. So while it's the story of this particular man, it becomes an inspiration for all of us. This is what it looks like to be that driven, to do what you know you do best. And that's exciting we certainly don't neglect carloff's horror career we have examples from all the we have a radio show segment oh boy that's exciting yes that's that i'm looking forward to that (laughs) yes that's because that was a very important part of his career i got permission i have a contract with universal studios to use dialogue from his classic horror movies and so all of that is included but I'm just saying it's much larger than that. It becomes kind of a kaleidoscopic thing unfolding that jumps back and forth in time. It's a series of fast vignettes. I meant the form of the play to to remind people of the cinematic form. There's lots of music underscoring, which I've written. It's nothing <laughs> like a, um, a dry, historical, linear account of here was my life it's flashes from his life reenacted and jumbled up in time so that like a movie that jumps back in time and done in a cinematic way and it all adds up to what I'm trying to describe the story of a remarkable man who made so much of himself because of his talent (laughs)
0: Go to Kickstarter and look up Karloff or follow the links in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. This campaign is running until August 20th. And as of this recording, he is almost halfway to his goal. I want to see Karloff. I want to see this one-man play. I'm excited about what he's got brewing for this thing. And, of course, I've heard the rest of the recording, which you're going to hear in a couple of days here in Monster Kid Radio. So I know what's coming, and I can't wait to see this thing. He's got some great rewards set up. Even if you cannot come to the actual performance for 25 bucks, you can get a DVD of the show recorded during a live performance of Garloff, the one-person play. So there's no reason... For you to think that just because you're not in the area, you can't support this project. Of course, if you are in the area, maybe we can coordinate a time for us to go see the play together. Maybe even make it a Monster Kid Radio crash. Big thanks to Randy for taking some time to chat with me here on Monster Kid Radio. Like I said, in two days on episode 120, he's going to be back. We're going to be back. Karloff is going to be back. And we're going to talk a little bit more and get more in depth about Karloff, the new one-person play that he's behind. Man, I can't wait. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Hollow Point. That belongs to the band Atomic Mosquitoes. It's from their album Meltdown and appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, talk to everybody in a couple of days for episode 120.